Thank you for tuning into the Short Stacks. I'm Lisa Quintero, Young Adult Librarian. And I'm Lizzie Jelly, Virtual Engagement Librarian. This is a show where we talk to you about what we've been reading, listening to, or watching. And today we have a special interview with T. Krulos about his book, American Madness, the story of the Phantom Patriot and how conspiracy theories hijacked American consciousness. Excellent. We are super excited to have you here and to talk a little <laughs> bit about this book and some of your other work as well. But before we dive in, for our listeners... I would love if you could give us kind of a brief synopsis of what your book is about, just a little taste for those of our listeners who haven't read it yet. Sure. Um, American Madness is about a very unique person that I stumbled across meeting named Richard McCaslin. And at first, I think I was attracted to the story because he's an interesting character. But as I continued to work on it, I saw it tying into the bigger picture, which is uh, the problem with conspiracy theory and the impact it's had on our society. I'll add a little bit to that. So uh, for those who don't know, Richard McCaslin is a guy who called himself the Phantom Patriot. He was like a, a real-life superhero or saw himself as a real-life superhero, and he infiltrated a place called Bohemian Grove in California um, and thought he was taking down the man. <laughs> yeah. But when he showed up, um, it was nothing like he expected it to be. Like he was gonna get rid of the statue, but the statue was made of concrete instead of wood, and set fire to something in a building, and ended up setting off sprinkler systems, and so everything just kind of got botched, and he ended up getting arrested and going to prison for was it nine, six, six years? Oh, uh, like six and a half years, okay. and then another three years on parole as well. Okay. So. And yeah, so apparently Bohemian Grove, I had never heard of it before, and yeah. it's apparently a place where a lot of Wealthy folks, uh, politicians, artists um, meet up in California for a bro-down every year. Um, no, no women allowed, and they just basically like drink a lot and have a weird seance, for lack of a better term, around this owl statue. The it's, it's, boys club. It, it's genuinely weird. It's yeah. a very weird story. Yeah. So. And it started, what, like the 1800s, was it? Yes. Like, yeah, yeah. I saw that, yeah, like... Yeah. Oscar Wilde was there, like, you know, presidents. Jack London was a, a member. Yeah. Uh, Mark Twain was, like, an honorary member okay. in the early days, so. Yeah, and then I remember reading in your book that, like, you know, Nixon and, and Reagan talked about who would run for office at what time there and things like that. And it's just like, okay, so, yeah, this is just a weird, weird boys club. And, yeah, that's not cool, but at the same time, like, are they, like, people eating children and sacrificing children <laughs> and doing all that sort of thing? Which is apparently what Richard McCaslin thought was happening there. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you think that conspiracy theory has kind of, you said it hijacked American consciousness. Do you think it's hijacked global consciousness as well? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I guess I originally thought of it as more of an American phenomenon, but mm -hmm. it's, it's not. Definitely not. I mean, there's always been some conspiracy throughout the ages around mm -hmm. the globe, but it seems like you know, a lot of American conspiracy theories are spreading to other countries, too. Like, okay. there's been QAnon uh, marches in, in Germany and other European huh. countries. And so um, uh, I know that Brazil has a president who's very similar in that he likes to spread conspiracy oh, yes, theories himself. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's a global problem now. Yeah, um, it's interesting because I was talking to Lizzie a little bit about that and how, like, I grew up being really into weird things like Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Donakin and, uh -huh. you know, uh, Unsolved Mysteries. But it wasn't like a thing that you actually, 
or at least I didn't actually believe it was real. Like, like my child brain wanted to believe it was real, but I was also like, this is just, you know, fun stories, just like stories yeah. about dragons or, you know, vampires or whatever. Right. Um, and it seems to be that more and more people are believing these things to be true. Um, you know, what would you attribute that to, perhaps? Yeah. Well, I mean, I my original view of conspiracy theory was I thought it was kind of charming. Mm. Um, you know, I was of age in the 90s when the X-Files was well, on. And, big X-Files and, fan. Yeah, that, that's to me what conspiracy theory was. It was kind of this fun, creepy mystery. They had these characters called the lone gunmen mm-hmm. on the show. And they were certainly quirky, but, you know, they're also portrayed as being intelligent and kind of right about things. Uh. So, um, but yeah, some of the stuff that people believe now, like the world being flat, mm-hmm. or that reptilian aliens are secretly <laughs> disguised as world leaders, it's just so shocking uh-huh. that there's a significant amount of people that believe this stuff. And I think it's a, a mix of many things, one being sort of a lack of faith in the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. And our government, you know, our government has lied about a lot of stuff in the past. Mm-hmm. So there's this, this sort of mass mistrust. And um, that makes it easier for someone to get sucked down like a YouTube rabbit mm-hmm. hole where they're watching videos that sometimes are um, presented in a very interesting way where you're like, oh, okay, I, I kind of see what their logic mm-hmm. is. So, um, and being that people spend so much time on the internet now, I think it's just been inevitable that more and more people fall into these beliefs. Yeah, and I guess, you know, we can do things now that weren't possible. I mean, before you could, like, manipulate images a little bit, but now with Photoshop and things, you can create these whole new images and make people believe certain things are real that aren't actually there. Yeah, and I mean, even the technology improving, like, like, if you watch an, a show on InfoWars, mm-hmm. it's really slick now, you know? Uh-huh. It looks like they're in a professional news studio mm-hmm. and that they're a legitimate news source uh-huh. because it's presented that way. Yeah. So it kind of tricks your mind in being like, there must be something to it, otherwise you wouldn't have this fancy setup. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and I guess now everybody can do this stuff. You know, we, we can do a podcast here in the library and Absolutely. people can, like, you know, make a TV show at home with, you know, just a little camera on their phone and... and do something on YouTube, you know, it's it's so yeah. much more accessible. So I guess that's part of what potentially has made people more distrustful of the media since so many people can do things, but at the same time, it's like, we have to get our information from somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> right, it gets more complicated. The more information is out there, the more you have to actually have some information literacy and be able to, like, weed through this kind of stuff. But, yeah, I was so... While I'm still decompressing from reading the book, honestly, because there's just so much going it's on a, here. It's an intense story. It's so much to unpack and yeah. so interesting how just this web that all weaves together and it's all kind of interrelated and bouncing off each other and it's just, yeah. my brain is still exploding a little bit. Yeah, but something, mine is too. Yeah. <laughs> well, good, I'm glad that we're together in that. But one thing that really stood out to me was kind of, as we were talking about kind of the rise of the internet and social media, is the pacing of the book as well. We see in the beginning, Richard's really hesitant to even, like, have a computer in his house. And by the end, he's a YouTube star, more or less, like, making videos, trying to get famous, using these tools. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how you feel about, as the book goes on, the pace really keeps up. And there's suddenly more and more conspiracy theories coming into play. And if you think, really, social media has been a big part of that, or what that oh, yeah. looks like in spreading these ideas to more people. Yeah, absolutely. It's huge. Um 
I mean, if you take, for example, uh, during the pandemic, of course, there's a lot of fear, a lot of anger. And so this uh, documentary called The Plandemic uh, was released. And because of social media, it spread so quickly. Mm. Like it had like several million views within just a couple of days because everyone was sharing it on Facebook and, and Twitter to a lesser extent. But that's what makes... Um, that's what makes it so dangerous, because if you look at something like the Bohemian Grove, mm. that conspiracy took a very long time to get anywhere. Mm. It was just kind of whispered about, and once in a while you might find a fringe publication mm. that would write something about it, but it's not like, you know, it spread at the snap of the fingers mm. like conspiracies nowadays can be. And again, with the pandemic, you have a, a period of time where a lot of people are spending a lot more time on the internet, mm. and so they're um, digesting that a lot faster, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, because Richard in the book, you know, seems to draw a lot of conclusions from a lot of things that most people wouldn't necessarily draw. Yeah. And I actually saw a meme this morning that was like, and it was some woman tweeted that like, Omicron and Delta spelled out media control, and then somebody else <laughs> pointed out they also spell out erotic almond. Like, what's your point? <laughs> like, <laughs> but people are like looking in all these places, these signs that these things are happening. Yeah, yeah. And so you got to know Richard over over you know the years. What was your sense of like how how he got there and why he was you know kind of the way he was? Oh, how he got into conspiracy. Yeah. Um. Well, he was, uh, he went through a very tough, tough period of his life. Mm. Um, he was raised as an only child. His relationship with his parents, especially his father, wasn't especially great. Um, they were very much into Christianity, and they were into Christianity at a time when, like, the satanic panic was mm. starting. So I think that kind of informed how he looked at some things. But then he had this terrible, like, falling down part of his life where both of his parents died relatively close to each other. He was an only child. Uh, he didn't have a lot of good friends. Mm -hmm. He lost his job during this period because he wanted to go visit his dying parents, and, and he got fired from a job that he really liked. He was, uh, he was a performer at Six Flags in a stunt show where he actually played Batman, mm -hmm. who was like his childhood hero. So I think all of this, and, and there was other stuff too, mm -hmm. all this negativity was really swirling around in his head. Mm -hmm. um, his parents had left him a sizable inheritance, but he didn't really have anything that he wanted to spend money on. Mm -hmm. So I think he was really lost, and he was looking for something that would give his life meaning. Okay. And he just happened to be watching Austin Cable Access mm -hmm. And he saw this uh, quote-unquote documentary made by Alex Jones that talked about the Bohemian Grove. Mm -hmm. And he kind of filled in some of the blanks himself, as conspiracy theorists tend to do. And he was like, no way, they're, they've got like children in that retreat that they're sacrificing in front of this owl statue, and I'm going to stop it. Mm -hmm. So I think that sort of gave him a, a mission in life, mm -hmm. and he adopted this superhero persona and got a bunch of weapons, mm -hmm. and he had been in the Marines, so, you know, he had some training as mm -hmm. to how to infiltrate a place, um, and then at a certain point, I think that 
he was like, all right, I'm going to do it now, and I don't really care if I live or die. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, and you wrote a book on real-life superheroes, so mm -hmm. what... What did you find, like, drives those folks? Is it that they're just, like, you know, people who are really into comics and were like, I want to do good for the world? Or is it people who are more like Richard where they're like, there's these conspiracies <laughs> and we need to do something about it because nobody else is going to do something? Yeah. Um, and that's how I met Richard, by the way. I, my first book, Heroes in the Night, I was working on that in 2010. Mm -hmm. It was published in 2013. And I had a blog where I was just kind of giving updates about what I was working on and he stumbled across that and messaged me. So real-life superheroes, they vary quite a bit in like their motivation and uh, you know their, what they're hoping to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Some of them are a very mild take, I would say, where they try to do charity events mm -hmm. and they have this colorful persona mm -hmm. where they try to attack, attract attention. And I think that's, you know, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. That's fun. Some of them um, have like sort of an activist angle, like okay. animal rights activists, um, or something like that. And then there are some that think that they're Batman, okay. and they want to go out there and try to fight criminals, mm -hmm. like in a comic book, mm -hmm. except, you know, real life is not at all like a comic book. Yeah. So um, Richard is very unique. That's why I mentioned him very briefly in Heroes in the Night, but I knew that his story was something that intersected with real-life superheroes, but he wasn't, like, a very typical mm. example of that. So, yeah, his mission was a lot more um, hardcore than the <laughs> other real-life superheroes I talked to. Uh, and he was sort of ahead of that uh, idea uh -huh. because he, did, um, he had started adapting his own superhero personas in the 80s, uh -huh. actually. And then it kind of climaxed with him raiding the Bohemian Grove in 2002, and uh, the real-life superhero movement, as we know today, didn't really get started until around 2005 or okay. 2006. Yeah, so. I thought it was really interesting that he did, like, a lot of cosplay, and, like, but before cosplay was, like, a yeah. thing, like, he made a lot of his own costumes and created his own superheroes, and... And I like the story of him going out with his like teenage friend yeah. in Ohio and being yeah. like, "We're gonna fight crime," and then be like, "There's nothing going on." And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that, that is what I imagined that would go like." Yeah, the link, <laughs> the links in Ironclaw. What was so great about Richard too is, um, I don't think he was a liar mm -hmm. at all. Like he had this kind of hard to believe story sometimes, mm -hmm. but. In that case, I interviewed the guy who was a teenager. I went mm -hmm. out with him on patrol, and he's like, yeah, we, we did that. We dressed up in a costume and uh, patrolled Zanesville, Ohio, <laughs> and nothing happened. And we went to a Comic-Con together. and so, But, yeah, the cosplay stuff, too, he was very creative, mm -hmm. which is why I think I... Um, I developed, you know, some feelings of sympathy for mm -hmm. him. I, I thought he went through this hard period of his life that he wasn't equipped to deal with. Mm -hmm. I thought he was very creative. Uh, he made these very nicely rendered costumes, mm -hmm. um, including, like you say, some of famous, well-known characters, mm -hmm. as well as some of his own creations. And uh, he was an illustrator. He drew his own comic books. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, he penned a comic in prison. Right? Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, as he pointed out, probably the only vigilante to draw a comic book about himself while in prison. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly unique, that is for sure. Yeah. But I think that really comes across in the book as well, that Richard is a very 
a human character in a lot of ways in this yeah. story and in real life. He's very complex, lots of things driving him, and it was sad at the end. Like, we yeah. feel for him towards the end of the book, and we really yeah. grow to understand and appreciate what he's been through and how it led to where he ended up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really easy to be angry at conspiracy theorists because you want to be like, how could you be so stupid? And mm-hmm. why would you put yourself in danger and, you know, or put other people in danger? But, I mean, they all have some story of how they got there, and it's mm-hmm. usually, you know, something bad that happened in their life or, you know, just the pressure of the world mm-hmm. causes them to snap a little bit. So. Yeah, it's like he seemed very lonely, and you know, and I feel like when people are that lonely, sometimes you feel like you have nothing left to lose, and you just kind of yeah. go all out with whatever it is that you're doing. I mean, he went out and bought, like, how many weapons before he went to raid the Bohemian so Yeah, yeah, that, that's what really caught my um, uh, my eye about his story. He he'd sent me this message and said that he had raided this place called the Bohemian Grove, so of course I hopped on Wikipedia and read about the Bohemian Grove. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is actually kind of weird. And um, and then he sent me uh, his comic, mm-hmm. which in some other paperwork, and I was like, wow, this is, I've not encountered a story like this before. He entered the Bohemian Grove, and he had, like, a rifle, a pistol, a ninja sword, a crossbow, a smoke bomb launcher, a hunting knife, uh, and he had a billy club in his, his truck. So he was well-armed because he thought that when he was going to enter, he was going to find a literal, like, group of Satanists (laughs) who were, like, sacrificing people Uh and that he was going to need to, like, possibly have a firefight with them so he could save the people that they were going to try to kill. Mm -hmm. And, of course, what he actually found in there was nothing except for a very uh, shocked groundskeeper (laughs) and... um, and then, you know, the responding officers who showed up. Yeah. Yeah, and it was interesting because, you know, the officers are just like, nothing like this has ever happened here before. <laughs> no, I, I cannot imagine. I mean, imagine you're getting a call to this remote place in the woods and this guy, he was wearing his full costume at the time, uh, yeah. which has this kind of creepy-looking skull mask yeah. and a jumpsuit. And so this guy comes from behind a tree holding a giant gun, you know, I'm sure... It was extremely shocking to them. Yeah, yeah. Here, I feel like the Punisher or something. Yeah, <laughs> And then there's this whole story where, like, Les Claypool comes into it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what? Yeah. I'm from Primus. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, uh, it was so much, it was so funny. So, Les Claypool lives in the same area that the Bohemian Grove is in, uh, Occidental California, where he has a a ranch, you know, and he has a recording studio on his Mm. ranch and stuff. And um, Richard's story was not well known at the time. Mm. It it had only appeared in some regional newspapers, Uh, like the San Francisco Chronicle wrote a little bit, and then there's sort of a rural newspaper, the Sonoma County Free Press, and they wrote a few articles about him. So Les Claypool happens to read one of these articles and gets inspired to write this little ditty about the Phantom Patriot called Phantom Patriot uh, that appeared on one of his solo albums. And, you know, it was just kind of like a the news report sets of music pretty much. Yeah. talked about him raiding the Grove or whatever. Uh, so I was like, I should try to talk to Les Claypool. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's... 
you got to learn sometimes if you're trying to get in contact with someone, sometimes you give up and sometimes you're persistent. Mm-hmm. And I just emailed like his publicity people <laughs> over and over again. I was like, hey, it's me again. Just wondering if I could talk to Les for a minute. Finally, they're like, fine, you got 10 minutes on the phone with him. Uh, Primus was on tour with Tool. Okay. And uh, they got me on the phone in... He was a little freaked out mm-hmm. because he's like, you think this guy's going to like show up at one of my shows and try to kill me? Mm-hmm. I was like, nah. I didn't want to say no. <laughs> I was like, I don't think so. Yeah, well, especially with, like, <laughs> we can go into it later, but the whole Shelly Wright story. Of, like, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, go ahead. Uh, so it was kind of an awkward conversation and about eight minutes into it, like his publicist guy on the line, he's like, all right, T, we're done. Bye. <laughs> I was like, well, at least I got to talk to Les Claypool yeah. for a few minutes on yeah. the phone and got a quote or two from him. Yeah. Um, and then Richard's defense attorney told me this great story about how Les Claypool actually got in trouble for fishing with the wrong hook mm-hmm. in, in the river uh, near the Bohemian Grove. And he represented him and got his fine knocked down. And then afterwards, he was able to show... Uh, Les Claypool Richard's costume, uh-huh. which he still had in his office because they were going to destroy it uh-huh. along with the other evidence. And he was like, nope, nope, I want that costume. <laughs> and so that costume is still sitting like in a file box in his oh, office. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Shelley Wright story. It's like he, yeah. he had this crush on this country singer and then just like relentlessly pursued her, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. This was, um, I would say, definitely the most challenging part for me, mm-hmm. writing the book, because I had no idea. I had been talking to Richard for about two years, mm-hmm. and, you know, we were. I met him in San Francisco. I met him three different times okay. in person, and we were driving around. He was like, you ever hear of Shelley Wright? I was like, no. He was like, oh, she's a country singer. I was like, okay, I don't really listen to a lot of country. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of dropped. And But a few months later, in an email, he was like, said something about Shelly Wright. Mm-hmm. I was like, what's going on here? So I Googled his name and her name in quotes, and I got one hit. And it was from MTV.com. And they said how lucky Richard McCaslin had won a charity dinner date with Shelly Wright by paying $14,500. I was like, oh, my God, what is is going on now? Yeah, like you said, he had a lot of money and didn't know what to do with it. Weapons, dates. Uh, So I I, I emailed him. I was like, so what's going on with Shelly Wright here? And he sent me a handwritten, like, 21-page account of how he had developed a crush on her. Um, he was popular at the time and he saw that she was doing this charity event so he drove to Nashville and kept bidding until he won the dinner date Mm -hmm. and then it's so funny because he's telling the story from his perspective but you Mm -hmm. can totally read between the lines Mm -hmm. and it's very obvious that she was just being polite to him Mm -hmm. and he thought that they were falling in love with each other and he became uh, a little obsessive about it. He kept writing her letters, and then he'd try to write to her brother. Oh, wow. And uh, her fan club was like, hey, you got you got to stop doing this. Mm-hmm. And, and he was kind of upset about it. But 
Um, yeah, I mean, for the rest of his life, I think he was kind of had this fixation mm-hmm. on her a little bit. Um, and he, but one thing is he credits her for saving his life because when he was in the Bohemian Grove, he was prepared to die mm-hmm. and thought he might die in a shootout with the police. But he says at the last minute, he kind of thought that the possibility that he might see her again someday made him surrender mm-hmm. to the police. So, and then, you know, it's, um, it just, it, it get more and more frustrating with him because later she revealed that she was having her own per- personal struggle of that type, uh, which is that she was closeted, okay. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Um, it, this is very difficult for her. She was in the country music scene, which was not very open mm-hmm. to that. And but when he found that out, instead of being like, "Oh, okay," you know, yeah. he like developed this conspiracy that she had been part of a government brainwashing program, and you know, it just it went on and on. And again, I, it was it was creepy. It was hard for me to write about because everything that I've seen is that she's a very wonderful, charitable mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. who's done a lot of good in the world. So I didn't want to drag her into the story, yeah. uh-huh. but at the same time, I think it was important to talk about because yeah. it was a big part of his life, yeah. whether she knew that or not. Yeah. So, yeah, and part yeah. of me wonders, you know, it's like he was so lonely and alone. If he had had more friends, if perhaps he wouldn't have developed some of these ideas about other people. Because sometimes when you have friends and people to talk to, they can be like, yeah, no, that's, that's yeah. not right. <laughs> right, yeah. they can bring you back down to earth. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Like, but oh, if no, you're just in your cool. head all the time, and it seems like he spent a lot of his life yeah. just in his head. Yeah, in developing this sort of fantasy version of himself and other people. In reality, Yeah. yeah. So what got you into writing about extremists and, like, superheroes and all that? Um, I mean, I, I've always been attracted to unusual people, uh, subcultures. Um, when I was in high school, I was way into punk rock, so I hung out with punk rockers and goth kids and skaters and metalheads and, and stuff like that. Um, the... So my first book about real-life superheroes, I mean, I really loved superhero comics when I was a kid. So it was just kind of the perfect blend of something I knew and was familiar with and this unusual subculture. And, you know, I was really just kind of interested in it from a sociological perspective. And then uh, Richard's story fell into my lap. And like I said, I was a little bit... uh, I thought I knew a lot about conspiracy, which it turned out I didn't at all. <laughs> but but I certainly, when I was younger, I loved reading about UFO cases. Mm-hmm. Um, I had some interest in, like, the JFK assassination. I had read, um, uh, oh, what's the writer? Uh, Crossfire by Jim Mars. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, the book that Oliver Stone's JFK okay. movie yeah. was based yeah. on. And so, so I had this interest in conspiracy, and um, but it went to much darker places than I thought it would. <laughs> it's because I wasn't aware of this very like dark side, Alex Jones and yeah. crisis actors at school shootings and stuff like that. Yeah. I was like, ooh. Yeah. So yeah, I learned a lot from you because like I I am aware of some of that stuff, and I know the name Alex Jones, but I, was, I didn't know how he got a start or you know about how. Like, it doesn't surprise me that, you know, people come back at him and are like, 
I did this because of Alex Jones, and he's like, I had nothing to do with that. Yeah, but <laughs> over and over again. Yeah. But like, you know, yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting to watch that cycle repeat, even when like he had met with Richard, right, Alex Jones. They had yeah. actually met and talked about Bohemian Grove, and at the end of it, just washed his hands of them and continues to do that. Mm-hmm. And we seem to be doing this for decades at yeah. this point. It's yeah, it, yeah, it's a, his classic routine. It's a, really a, a story that's repeated itself. I feel like Richard was kind of the first person who took him seriously and did something. Mm-hmm. And then Alex Jones was like, he was like, I have no idea why he did that. That's so crazy. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, come on. <laughs> he, uh, in this uh, Bohemian Grove documentary, he very strongly implies that they're sacrificing people mm-hmm. inside the grove in front of this owl statue. And then, I mean, I think this is one of the most damning things. At the end of the documentary, he's standing on a road outside of the Bohemian Grove telling you driving instructions to get there. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, you not only gave this guy a motivation to go yeah, there. you gave him the direction. You, <laughs> exactly how he could find this hidden place. So, but yeah, it just, it repeats itself over and over again. Um, there was an incident similar to Richard where a guy invaded a pizzeria in Washington, D.C. because he believed there was child trafficking ring there. And he had seen a short video on InfoWars. It wasn't Alex Jones specifically, but it was a video on his site. Mm-hmm. Uh, even January 6th, Alex Jones was there yelling at people through a bullhorn, riling them up. And then when they started attacking the Capitol, he was out of there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's just an instigator. Yeah. Yeah, total instigator. And you guys are working on a documentary about the book. Yes, uh, it was very exciting. Um, Eric Hayden is a director, and he and his wife Kim are producers. Okay. And he just uh, heard me on a podcast. Actually, okay, cool. read the book, really enjoyed it, and uh, we've been. Uh, slowly working on adapting it into a documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to go out to California in October to help him interview some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we even went to the Bohemian Grove. Uh, we we oh. didn't we didn't try to sneak in because uh, that would probably be foolish because we'd just get arrested. But we were able to at least like um, you know film some of the area around okay. it and. Yeah, because you're not allowed to film actually in the Grove, right? Right, right. Yeah. yeah. No pictures, yes. no phones. Yeah, no media at all. There are, there are media people who are involved, but they're not, uh, mm-hmm. or a part of the club, but they're not allowed to mm-hmm. talk about it. It's kind of this air of secrecy that's led, I mean, I kind of feel like if they would just let like a news crew in mm-hmm. to yeah. look around, then... That people would chill a little bit yeah, more Yeah, maybe. But, you know, it's hard to convince a conspiracy theorist of... Yeah. Anything. Well, with all of this, layers and layers of conspiracy theory, all kinds of just banana stuff going on in here. At the end of the book, you talk about how you had to really kind of climb out of that rabbit hole and take some time to decompress, if you will. Do you have any suggestions for the rest of us who are kind of climbing out of this conspiracy (laughs) theory rabbit hole anymore of how we can decompress from that and kind of come back down to earth a little bit? Yeah, it's uh, it takes a very Heavy toll, I think, uh, thinking about it, um, trying to figure out why people believe this, and just, you know, some of the aspects like uh, the the Sandy Hook denial, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like, it makes you angry and upset, mm-hmm. so 
it's very challenging. I, I wrote that at the end of the book, and you know, I had wrapped this book up in 2019, mm-hmm. and so I was like, all right, you know, I'm kind of done with this. <laughs> and then the pen yes, <laughs> But then there was this tidal wave of conspiracy about everything, yeah. the, the pandemic, the election, some of the you know, civil unrest. So yeah, it is, it's very hard still to even turn on the news. But, you know, I think I would just say that people should try to find stuff that they enjoy to distract them from Mm -hmm. that, you know, and try to put it into perspective. And, um, you know, this, unfortunately, is something that we have to accept as being part of life now. Mm -hmm. And in talking to people since this book came out, I've discovered that there are so many people I've talked to so many people that they're like, you know, this book reminded me of this guy I used to work with or that lives down the street from me or is my aunt or my uncle or my ex, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of uh, shocking to know that there are so many people that have this line of thinking out there. Yeah. So what are you working on these days besides the documentary? Ah, um... That documentary is super fun. Um, I'm also working on a short documentary. I wrote an article for Milwaukee Magazine that's about horror hosts. Oh, yeah. And uh, there are people like you know, Vampira, Elvira, Sven Gulli. Oh, yeah, Sven Gulli's great. <laughs> um, but there's, they have their own shows, and there's an unusually high concentration of them in Kenosha, for oh. whatever reason. Okay. So I wrote this article from Milwaukee Magazine, and some local friends of mine are helping translate that into a documentary short, which is super fun. We've been hanging out on set with the Mm -hmm. four hosts and interviewing them. Um, And then I just had a very short project. It's called Brady Street Pharmacy Stories and Sketches. Mm -hmm. It's published by Vegetarian Alcoholic Press, which is a small press here in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. And it's just a short collection of... um, short stories about a place I used to work at that was sort of a greasy spoon slash drugstore called the Brady Street Pharmacy. Mm-hmm. So some stories about like the regulars and some of my coworkers. Uh, that was a, a fun little project and it, it just came out um, mm-hmm. last week. Oh, wow. And then you do a podcast of your own too, right? Yes. Uh, my podcast is Tease Weird Week. Um, usually interview a guest and then me and my friend Heidi Erickson talk about weird news of the week and we close out with a song that's usually by a local band. We have a trivia question in there. So we just wrapped up the season and we'll be back with more episodes um, later next month. Cool. All right. So any favorite books you'd like to share with our audience? Um, Whether they're about conspiracy or not. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I mean... It's sort of a story, like I was saying, it's hard to decompress from, but at the same time, I'm very uh, interested in where all this is going Mm -hmm. and also staying on top of some of it. Mm -hmm. So um, I just read a great book by Mike Rothschild. It's called The Storm is Upon Us, and it kind of takes you through step-by-step about QAnon. Which I wrote in American Madness. I wrote a chapter titled Q, (laughs) but it's really just kind of the beginning of that story because I was writing about in 2019. It's of course turned into yeah yeah, yeah. into a very big worrisome thing now. So his book has a little bit more information 
on how it developed and, and where it might be going. Um, I'm trying to think what else I've read lately. I read a good book by Matt Taibbi called Hate Incorporated. Okay. It's just kind of about how um, political reporting has become sort of like a, a sporting event, mm-hmm. you know, left versus right, mm-hmm. and what motivates some of that. Um, I'm trying to think. Mm-hmm. What else? It's a hard Maybe. question when we put you on the oh, spot. No, no. Uh, <laughs> okay, so I don't remember the author, but the illustrator is Eric Powell, and it was a graphic novel about Ed Gein. Oh, actually. yeah. That just came out, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it is... It's titled, like, Did You Hear What Ed Gein Did? Mm-hmm. Or something yes, like that. that yeah. Yeah. I just picked up a copy, so I'm looking oh. forward to, to reading that because I really enjoy his artwork. And, of course, Ed Gein is a super creepy story with yeah. a Wisconsin root, so yeah. that always uh, grabs my interest. Yeah, I'm curious about that one. Yeah, I ordered the graphic novels here, and a few years ago I ordered My Friend Dahmer by... Um, yeah, I read that one, yeah, too. Yeah, and, like, that yeah. one was, was also interesting since it also has a Milwaukee tie. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, and one more question that just out of curiosity, because yeah. you mentioned in the book that T. Cruz is not your uh, real yeah. name. Is he a name? Where did you come up with that name? <laughs> uh, it's a name that really started to evolve in middle school. People called me T, like the letter T, <laughs> and then I kind of fleshed it out into a first name. And the Cruz thing was something that I developed during my high school punk rock days, mm-hmm. just because I thought it sounded awesome at the time, and now I'm just sort of a, attached to it. Cool. But, but yeah, I mentioned it in the book, which is the first time I've ever like mentioned that it's just a pen name. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was worth bringing up because I had to tell Richard at some point mm-hmm. that it wasn't my real name. And he was, of course, being sort of a paranoid person. He was like, what? What's, what's going on? I was like, oh, it's a pen name, you know? I was like, hey, everyone's got a pen name. Everyone from Mark Twain to mm-hmm. Ice Cube. Mm-hmm. And then his response was so funny because he was like, I know what a pen name is, but you might want to pick your examples a little better because Mark Twain was a member of the Bohemian Club and Ice Cube is one of the Illuminati. <laughs> and I, was like, I was like, I did not even think of <laughs> that would be a response, but... It makes sense coming from you. Yeah, it's like we think in completely different ways. But yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I accept this. <laughs> yeah, but that's just how he was about everything. He had this very deep interpretation of symbolism and word choice and numbers mm-hmm. that the normal person would just pass by and not even blink. Mm-hmm. But to him, it had a very deep meaning. Yeah. All right, well, thank you very much for joining us on the show and Stacks. Um, if you want to check out T's book, it's available here at the library, or you can get a copy from local booksellers Boswell or Lion's Tooth. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up here? Oh, thanks for having me. I, I love the library so much. It's been a very important part of my life. And, of course, uh, my books couldn't happen without the library because that's where I do a lot of my research, get my materials from. Cool. So always glad to be in a library. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> And now for some library events. We have a lot of fun coming up for you this January. First of all, don't forget that the library is closed on New Year's Day, Saturday, January 1st, but we'll be open again on January 2nd for normal hours. We have Art Cart to go every Wednesday this week. Our PM Book Club is meeting on Wednesday, January 5th. And the Job Center of Wisconsin will be here on Wednesday, January 12th for drop-in help for job seekers as well. 
We have a family fun night to go kit ready for you on Tuesday, January 11th. Rhyme Time Tuesday continues that same morning as well. And Rhyme and Read Lapset begins on Tuesday, January 18th at 9 a.m. And don't forget, you do need to register in advance. We also have plenty of events for our teens coming up in January as well with a teen advisory board meeting on Tuesday, January 25th. And Teen Take and Make Thursday continues on Thursday, January 27th. The Shorewood Stacks is produced and recorded by Lisa Quintero and Lizzie Jelly for the Shorewood Public Library. Music by the show is called Ice Flow and is by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incompetech.com.